All right. Doesn't it feel a little bit just calmer now? Isn't that amazing? Uh, we love having the kids in here, but we love having them in here once every once in a while, right? It's, just kidding. I'm, I'm very excited uh, for this Sunday. This Sunday is two years in the making. Now, we've been in this series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. And if it's your first time, we've been basically going through the old, some of the Old Testament and we've been trying to show that the Old Testament didn't go away. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so we've been trying to show you what it looks like for a Christ follower to live in a time where Jesus has fulfilled the law. And one of the things that I wanted to show you was about the festivals in the Old Testament. But what is interesting about these festivals is rather than just getting into them and, and me preaching, I wanted today to show you one of them that I think is one of the most uh, powerful, probably the most powerful, and it's the, the, um, it's the celebration of Passover. Now, the first time I ever tried to celebrate Passover, my wife, she actually made all the elements, and we had a book, and we went through it, and it was a powerful, it was pretty neat to see that, uh, that every single year Jewish families would go through the Passover and that this was a tradition that we read in the Bible and they would do this. But about three years ago, I wanted to bring this to our church. And so I was uh, thinking about how to do it and I got a, uh, actually got something in the mail or an email from Chosen People Ministries. And, uh, and so I just got a thing in the mail, I called them and I was introduced to Dr. Rich Freeman, who I'm going to invite to the stage now and introduce. Y'all give a hand to Dr. Freeman. And Dr. Freeman walked us uh, two years ago, walked this church um, on, a, on an evening through a Passover meal. And it was so enlightening that I immediately booked him for the next year. And I said, and I want you here on a Sunday morning. And it was two years before that I could make that happen. So I think this was 2016, 2017 that we booked this knowing that uh, I wanted you guys to see the context of this meal. Because for me, I, I grew up um, as a kid thinking that the Lord's Supper, when we had the little cup and we had the little piece of bread... I, I always wondered why Jesus got his friends together just to eat one little cup and one little piece of bread. And just the context of seeing that what Jesus was doing was celebrating a Passover meal and that there was much more involved, much uh, more foreshadowing, much more uh, theology involved than just having those two little elements. And so today you're going to get to see the entire uh, Passover meal and then you're going to, we're going to all celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. And I hope it's going to bring a new context to us. And I also want to, uh, as Dr. Freeman comes, we're at the end of this, we're going to have what is called a love offering. And if you're new to um, our church or to church life, sometimes when we have guest speakers come in, we do what's called a love offering. And so a love offering is where we just invite you to give towards his ministry as well. You, we still want you to give towards Connection Point Church. But at the end, you're going to have an opportunity to give towards uh, um, Chosen People Ministry. You also, uh, he's going to tell you about some books that they have and resources because I want you to know if you want to do your own Passover, all these things I want you to be able to carry with you. We're also going to have this on video, so if it seems like a lot of him, this is seminary. He, we went to the same seminary. That's why I, I knew this was a God-ordained uh, relationship. Uh, if this seems like too much, remember, it's on video. You don't have to write it all down. You can go back and watch it next year. If you want to celebrate your own Passover, you can have him explain it as you go. So um, thank you all very much for uh, being here today. I think this is going to be very powerful. So once again, let's give a hand to Dr. Freeman.
Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not from these here parts. Uh, as Pastor share with you, my name is Rich Freeman. Uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus and uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And um, we lived here while I was in school. We lived in Richardson, not too far from here. And Plano was the new place in the Metroplex, which will tell you how long ago I was in seminary. And so um, I'm amazed at how Frisco is now considered close by. That, that used to be farmland when I was here, and now it's, it's so built up. But it's really good to be with you all. And uh, what we're going to be doing is um, kind of fits in with what pastor's trying to do to show you how all of this uh, Old Testament, New Testament fits together. Uh, because these elements are on a traditional Jewish Passover plate. Uh, Passover will be celebrated later on in April. Uh, first night of Passover actually is on Good Friday, on April 19th. And so that's going to be celebrated then. It's all coming up very quickly. Uh, but I want you to get a sense of what the Last Supper looked like. Uh, because the Last Supper was a Passover meal that Ju Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And we tend to view the painting, The Last Supper by Da Vinci, as basically the, the best description of that. And it's a beautiful work of art. If you have it in your house, you don't have to take it down. Uh, but it's the perspective of the Last Supper from an Italian Catholic living in the 15th century. And uh, da Vinci brings some of his Italian culture as well as some of his Catholic theology. Uh, these pillows on the chairs here are to let you know that rather than seated on chairs, as da Vinci portrays, they were actually on the floor reclining. And they were laid out all around the table. The table was a three-sided table called a triclinium, where you recline on the floor. And the very first spot would have been situated closest to the door so that the host could get up to greet his guests. Now, the host of the Last Supper obviously was Jesus, but Jesus wasn't the first spot. Rather, it was John. Next to John was Jesus, and very likely next to Jesus was Judas. And I'll show you from the scriptures why I believe that. We don't know who these others were, but the very last spot opposite John uh, was probably Peter. And again, I'll show you from the scriptures why I believe that. So if you could picture them on the floor reclining, that will change your view of a very important event that happened at the Last Supper. Now you could see on this table here, there's a, a bowl of water. Now traditionally, at Passover, everybody will wash their hands to be cleansed according to the law of Moses. And Jesus does something different at the Last Supper. What does Jesus do? He washed their feet. And because of our view of the Last Supper from da Vinci's perspective, we kind of tend to see someone seated in a chair, lifting up their foot, and Jesus kind of kneeling down a little bit to wash their feet. It's not how it happened. Jesus girded himself wrapped a towel around his waist, got on his hands and knees, taking on the role of the lowest house slave. And as he did that, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples when you have loved one for another, teaching us about self-sacrificial love. And in my study of the foot washing in the Last Supper, it appears to be early enough in the meal that Jesus very likely washed Judas' feet. And we tend not to think about that, 
But imagine Judas knowing what he was about to do that night and Jesus on his knees washing Judas' feet and staring into his eyes and directly into his soul with a smile on his face as Jesus, I always picture Jesus with a smile on his face. Judas had to have been a tormented person that night as he was planning to betray his master. And so we celebrate Passover and it begins with the lighting of the candles. Now, the Jewish tradition is the, is the mother lights the candles, uh, but uh, since we're here, just me, I will light the candles. And there's a traditional prayer that goes with it. That sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? <laughs> and the traditional prayer is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshonu B'mitzvot Zavet Zivonu Lahadlik Ner Shel Pesach Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us and commanded us concerning the lighting of the Passover lights. And the tradition of the candles is the tra it represents the light of God and as you look at these candles, let it be a reminder to you that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And wherever we as his followers go, we are to bring his light to dark places, even a dark place like the Metroplex of Dallas. Amen? And so may your light shine all throughout Plano and around. So that's the lighting of the candles. In front of me is four cups of grape juice. Uh, tradition is that one cup is taken four times, but each time the cup is taken, it has different significance and meaning. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. The word to sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. It's what begins the meal. Sometimes it's called the kiddush cup, means the cup of holiness. The second cup is called the cup of judgment. The cup of judgment, a reminder of God's judgment in the form of the ten plagues upon Egypt. The third cup is the key element in the Passover. It's taken after the supper. Passover is in three parts, actually. There's a longer ceremonial part, then a full meal that would be from with soup to dessert, and then after, a second shorter part of the ceremony. And the cup after supper is the key element. It's what we're going to remember later on. And that third cup is called the cup of redemption. Cup of redemption. And I'm going to quiz you on this later, so you better remember. Third cup, cup of redemption. Uh, fourth cup is taken at the very end of the meal. It's called the cup of praise. And there's a promise attached to it from Exodus chapter 6. That promise, I will take you to be my people. So cup of sanctification, cup of judgment, cup of redemption, cup of praise. I take the first cup, and there is a traditional prayer that goes each time the cup is, is taken, and that prayer is, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri HaGofen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Everybody say amen. amen. And we take the first cup. This is called a Seder plate, and this is a pretty nice one. And the Seder plate is where all the elements are contained. And uh, we have them in these cups so that you can see them a little better. And this element is parsley. And the parsley represents something called a hyssop plant. The hyssop plant was kind of a natural paintbrush. It had a long stem 
and a brush-like end to it. And it was very important to the Israelites because it was used at the very first Passover to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses. If you remember the story of Passover, the last plague is coming. God tells Moses to tell the Israelites to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses because when the destroyer comes, the firstborn's about to die, when the destroyer comes and he sees the blood on the door, what's he going to do? He's going to pass over that house, and the people in that house, covered by the blood, are saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's the picture of Passover, redemption, salvation by the blood of the Lamb. And we tend uh, to kind of understand Passover from the perspective of the movie, The Ten Commandments, the one with Charlton Heston. And so in that movie, you see them placing the blood of the lamb on the door, and they kind of paint it on the door in this sort of random fashion. And that's really not how it was done. The way the blood was placed on the door, and there, there's a process to this. Exodus 12 is the picture of the first Passover, and John 12, the last week of Jesus, is an amazing parallel to that. But anyway, in Exodus 12, the children of Israel are told that on the 10th day of the month, excuse me, on the month of Nisan, they are to bring a lamb into the house, a perfect spotless lamb. So as they bring the lamb into the house, imagine a house with children. It's nighttime. The doors are shut. One little candle is lighting the whole house. And suddenly the door opens up and there's the papa with a little lamb with a rope tied around its neck leading it into the house. Has to be inside the house, in that little community. And so what the papas do is they bring it into the house, and obviously if this is a house with small children, what are the kids gonna do? It's gonna become a pet. Can everybody see Charlotte's Web? <laughs> and so they're gonna play with the lamb, the lamb is gonna become part of the family, let's give it a name, we'll call it Fluffy. And as the kids play with little Fluffy, Papas get real serious. Because you see, the lamb has to be perfect. It can't have any imperfection, no spot or blemish, the Bible says. And as they watch the lamb interact with the community, they want to make sure that the lamb is everything it's supposed to be. And after four days of examining that lamb, of watching that lamb in the community, the Papas make a pronouncement. The lamb is worthy to be slain. All the lambs are taken out of the house at the same time, in the same place, outside the house, and killed all at once, as though it were one lamb. That's how Exodus 12 reads. The blood of the lamb is captured in what's called a basin. Now, the basin, in my study, it tends to be considered to be some sort of bowl where the blood of the lamb would have been captured and placed at the bottom of the doorframe. And so picture a doorframe, and on the bottom of the doorframe is going to be this bowl of lamb's blood. Now, why is it there? If you place blood on the doorframe, what's it going to do? It's going to drip. So this is sort of a catch basin that it's there for. Now, I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22. And this is the instructions that the children of Israel were given uh, how, on placing the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Now remember, the, it's the blood of the lamb that saves them, not because they're Israelites. Nobody gets saved based on what ethnic group they're from. They have to personally apply the blood of the lamb. And so as we look at this, 
Here's the instruction. This says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, that's what the parsley represents, and dip it in the blood which is in the basin. So the basin is in the bottom of the door. Apply some of the blood in the basin to the lintel, that's the top of the door, and then to the two doorposts. So follow what they were told to do. Dip it in the basin, the bottom, put it on the top and to the two sides. What did I just do? Made a cross. The children of Israel were not only given the means of their salvation, it would be salvation by the blood of the Lamb, they were also shown the fulfillment of their salvation. When Jesus died on that bloody Roman cross, he fulfilled Passover. He was the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. That's what we remember with the parsley. And next to the parsley is some salted water. The salted water represents two things. First, it represents the tears that the children of Israel cried out to God as slaves in Egypt. If you've ever tasted your tears, your tears actually are salty. But also it represents a great miracle that happened at the Red Sea, which is a salt sea. And what's the great miracle? The parting of the sea. And so, again, because of the movie, uh, there's a scene which is actually considered one of the greatest scenes in cinema history, the scene where they part the Red Sea. The uh, movie director Cecil B. DeMille hired 20,000 extras. <coughs> Matzah from the first service. <laughs> 20,000 extras uh, to film this, and there's a scene where they show the sea being parted and the children of Israel crossing the sea about 20 wide. So the next time the movie is on, how many of you have seen it at least twice? The rest of you are lying. Everybody's seen it. I mean, it's one of those things that it's on every night, every, the night before Easter probably. The next time you see it, I want you to watch carefully the scene where they cross the sea. And see, they're only about 20 wide. What's the problem with that? The problem is that Moses counted the adult males at the instruction of God when they were in the wilderness, and he counted more than 600,000 adult males. They're fighting men. And if we estimate conservatively that they had a wife and some children, we're talking about a group of people that left Egypt that very likely was two, perhaps as many as three million people, all crossing the sea overnight. For that many people to cross in that short a period of time it's very likely that God didn't part the sea 20 wide or even a mile wide. He parted it miles across, literally removed the sea from in front of the Israelites. They crossed on dry ground, got to the other side. The army of Pharaoh on chariots went in after them, but never caught up to them. Why not? Because the walls of water came back and wiped out what was the strongest army in the world at that time. That's what we remember uh, with the salted water. And so, traditionally, a little sprig of parsley is broken off, and a prayer would be recited. The prayer, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, borei peri ha'adama. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the earth. The parsley is dipped in the salted water, and everybody would eat. Excuse me a minute. That's the parsley and the salted water. 
this next element is called a matzatash. Everybody see it? What's unusual about the matzatash, and the word matzatash just simply means matzah pocket. Inside this matzah pocket, which kind of looks like a pillow without the stuffing in it, is actually three compartments. One, two, three. Everybody see that? So this is a three-in-one matzatash. Sometimes it's called an echad, a unity. And it's very interesting in uh, discussions with Jewish people regarding Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jewish people tend to think that Christians worship three gods, not understanding uh, the perfect unity of the Godhead, three in one. And so it's very difficult. Now, I have seminary degrees, and I have to tell you, I have yet to find the perfect response to how do you explain separate yet equal, the same but not, you know what I'm saying? It's very difficult. But nonetheless, you're going to see this is a perfect picture of the Godhead as it's done in Passover. But uh, because they don't believe that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they would say that uh, this doesn't represent God. This represents the patriarchs. Who are the patriarchs from the book of Genesis? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, three patriarchs, one matzatash. And you might be thinking, well, I guess that's a plausible explanation. But I want you to follow what happens next. Because, and this goes at every single Passover, they take the second of the three in one, the middle piece. It's taken out. And I want you to notice some things about the matzah. This is unleavened bread, no yeast, no leaven. Leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. So unleavened bread is a picture of sinlessness. The way the matzah would be made, you would make dough out of uh, flour and water, no yeast, and you would lay it out, and as it's baking, you would put holes in it to keep it from rising. Even without yeast, it would rise a little bit and come out sort of like pita bread. Uh, but you want it flat, like a cracker. And so you can see there's holes in this, it's, uh, this is made with machine, but if you were making matzah uh, on your own, you would use a fork probably and just pierce holes in it to keep it flat. So this is pierced. As it's baked, could you all see the kind of different colorations on it? It's not exactly even, so it would take on different colorations and they sort of resemble stripes. There's a prophecy in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, written about 700 years before the historical events of the cross took place. And in that prophecy, Isaiah writes, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our shalom, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. This second of the three in one, unleavened representing sinlessness, Striped and pierced clearly is intended to be a picture of Jesus. I want you to watch what happens next. It's broken in half. One piece is left out. The other piece is wrapped in a linen cloth, sort of like a burial cloth. And then it's buried, hidden away and will not be brought back until after supper. That will be the piece of bread that Jesus says, this is my body. That so amazingly points to him. It's called the afikomen. The afikomen is called the bread of affliction. 
And Isaiah in the 53rd chapter also referring to the one who would be the Messiah, that he would be afflicted, despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So the bread of affliction, again, a picture of the Messiah. And that will be part of the after the supper ceremony. We're up to the second cup. Second cup is the cup of judgment, a reminder of God's judgment against Egypt in the form of the 10 plagues. If you remember the story, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say what? Let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God brings a plague in the form of turning the Nile River into blood. Pharaoh asks Moses to stop the plague. Moses prays. The plague is stopped. Pharaoh changes his mind. New plague takes place. And it happens 10 times. And you almost suspect that God's up in heaven saying, what do I have to do to make this guy stop doing that? But that's not the whole story, is it? Because in that biblical narrative, we also read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't mean he forced him to do something he wouldn't do anyway, but that he used the hard heart of Pharaoh to bring glory to himself. Because you see, these plagues were actually against the gods of the Egyptians. The Egyptians actually worshipped the Nile River as a god, and all the other plagues, the frogs and the lice and the flies and the locusts, all of those represent different gods of the Egyptians. And the last two plagues were against the chief god of the Egyptians, who was their sun god named Ra. And Ra was, uh, Pharaoh was considered to be Ra on earth. He was the representative of Ra. And Ra was known by two titles. First, he was called the god of light. The ninth plague, total darkness. And then he was also called the god of life. So that last plague, the death of the firstborn, proved the superiority of the God of Israel. Because after the plague, the Egyptians would have prayed to Ra to restore the life of their loved one, their firstborn. And when it didn't take place, they understood the lesson. The God of Israel was the one true almighty God. They were so afraid of the Israelites because of their God that not only did they convince Pharaoh to let them go, they paid them to go. They gave them the treasury of Egypt. That's how they had all the gold in the wilderness. And that fulfilled a prophecy given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, where he said, God said to him, your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, then they will be delivered with many possessions. That's what we remember with the second cup. And so the prayer, once again, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pariha Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everyone say amen. amen. And we take the second cup. If you're following along in your Bibles, turn to John 13. John 13 is John's account of the Last Supper. And it's here at this point in time that Jesus makes a statement that shocks his disciples. It's found at the end of verse 21. Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So this is the point in time where Jesus, at the Last Supper, announces that one of the twelve is a betrayer. And so, we almost suspected that kind of Judas had the reputation that everybody would have sort of glanced at him. In fact, John's style of writing is that if he felt there was an explanation necessary, he would add a parenthetical statement. And he does that in a number of places in the Gospel of John. 
particularly about Judas, that he was the betrayer, that he was a thief. And you would have suspected that John would have added here, of course, he was referring to Judas. But John doesn't do that. Instead, he says the disciples looked at one another at a loss to know of whom he was speaking. And so what was going on? They were looking at each other, and they couldn't imagine any one of the 12 betraying Jesus. Okay, so now picture in your mind da Vinci's painting. Everybody seated in big chairs. Now we come to this next verse. John writes this, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom, on his chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is John. Remember I said John was in the first spot, Jesus was in the second spot. If they were seated on chairs, this would be a really weird looking scene. Because suddenly one guy puts his chest, his head on the chest of another guy for no reason whatsoever. But if they're on the floor laid out as they would have been, what's going on? John's getting tired. And he's bracing himself back against his friend Jesus because he was getting tired. So there's John leaning back against Jesus. He was that familiar with him. Now, the person with the best view of that around the table would have been the last spot, directly opposite. And that's Peter. Because the next thing we read is Simon Peter gestured to him, said to him, tell us whom it is of whom he is speaking. Because, you see, Peter hears Jesus say, one of you will betray me. Peter immediately thinks to himself, no, no, that won't happen. I'll stop it. And so he's trying to find out who the betrayer is because he knows it's not him. And then he sees John leaning against Jesus, and he knows it's not John. And so he's trying to get John to ask Jesus who the betrayer is, and he does it with hand gestures. Now, Jesus just made this statement, one of my own, one of my 12 is a betrayer, and, John, and Peter's doing hand gestures, like playing charades. It, it actually was probably kind of funny looking. But John figured out what what Peter was trying to do, he turns to Jesus, says, he leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? So John figured out what Peter was doing, and Jesus looks at John and says, what's wrong with you people? Haven't you figured it out yet that it's Judas? No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to them. And so what Jesus is saying is he's going to take the bread, dip it in some mixture, and give it to the betrayer. That's who the betrayer is. Now, if you don't understand the context of what's taking place, this can mean almost anything. And I have to tell you, I've read commentaries where there's some bizarre explanations as to what this is. It's actually quite simple. The unleavened bread is dipped two times, one in bitter, one in sweet, during the Passover meal. Jesus is about to reveal that someone that he loved and trusted is going to betray him, and that betrayal is going to cause him to die an agonizing death on a Roman cross. What do you suppose he's going to use as his illustration of that, the bitter or the sweet? The bitter, of course. So he takes a piece of the bread, dips it in the bitter mixture, and 
On this plate, it's horseradish. And it says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Notice that it doesn't say he got up and gave it to him. What does that imply? He's right next to him. And so Jesus offers the bread. Judas would have heard Jesus say, that's the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So by taking the bread, Judas is, is symbolically acknowledging that he's going to be the betrayer. Something interesting happens next. So, so when he dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered him. So Satan now, as Judas takes the bread, takes possession of Judas. Judas is now nothing more than a pawn of Satan. Because, you see, Satan believes that if he could kill Jesus, he wins, which certainly proves that he's not all-knowing. Amen? And so, notice what happens next. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Who's Jesus speaking to? I used to think it was Judas. I actually think it was Satan. Satan enters Judas. Jesus would have saw Satan doing that. He's looking right at Satan, and he said, what you do, do quickly. Because the rules of English grammar say when there's a personal pronoun, Jesus said to him, you're supposed to refer to the antecedent, which would have been the last person spoken. The last person spoken of was Satan. Jesus looks directly at Satan and says, what you do, do quickly. Judas gets up and leaves, and the disciples really are clueless as to why he left. They think maybe he went to buy more food since he was the one who held the money. I think Jesus would have gone back to the traditional teaching of the bitter herbs and taught that the bitter herbs represent the bitterness that the children of Israel experienced in bondage as slaves in Egypt. And so he would have given everybody at the table a piece of the bread. They all would have dipped in the bitter mixture and he would have recited a traditional prayer, Baruch HaTah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshonu B'mitzvot Tzav Ve'tzivanu Al Achilat Moror. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us, commanded us concerning the eating of the bitter herbs, and everybody at the table would have eaten. Nobody's in the spit zone, so I need to wash this down. Now, Pastor Joel actually made this. So it's really good. I tasted it at the first service. This is the sweet mixture. And it's supposed to re resemble the mortar that the children of Israel had to make as slaves in Egypt. Their role as slaves were the construction workers. They were the ones who built the cities of the Pharaoh. And the way they would make the mortar, they would take mud and straw. They would be in these huge mud pits and they would find the guys with the biggest feet like me, size 14, and those poor guys would be trudging in the mud all day, mixing the mud and the straw. The mixture would be poured into molds, left out in the sun to dry, and that's how they made the bricks that built the cities of the pharaohs. And uh, we go to Israel every year, and sometimes you'll go to ruins, and you'll actually see bricks with dried straw sticking out of them, because that gave them some kind of the ability to stick stick to it. I mean, we have baseball stadiums that, that are falling down after 30 years, 
And these are 6,000 years old and they're still standing, so they must have known what they were doing. And so this represents that, uh, that task of, of making the mortar. Now, this is very sweet tasting. It's made with apples, grape juice, honey, uh, walnuts, right, and cinnamon. All kind of chopped and, and mixed together. So the question is, why would the task of making mortar not be another bitter mixture? Instead, it's a sweet mixture. Well, the answer is, in the midst of the harshness of their lives, the children of Israel believed in the promises of God. God promised them deliverance. They believed in the promise of God. And the promises of God should always leave a sweet taste in our mouth. Amen? That's the lesson for us. For New Testament believers, I think it's pretty clear. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. In a room with this many people, I'm positive. Someone, someone here is going through a very difficult time. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that's the lesson. The promises of God should always leave a sweet taste in your mouth. And so there's actually no prayer for this. And the sweet mixture is taken and eaten. The next element is a hard-boiled egg. The hard-boiled egg, and it's a brown egg because it represents the sacrifices. Now, why would the egg represent the sacrifices? Well, for the children of Israel, the sacrifices kept them in right relationship with God, and that gave them life. The egg is a beautiful picture of life. And additionally, anybody here grow up on a farm with chickens? You got all city folks in your church. <laughs> well, anybody want to guess how often a healthy hen lays an egg? Every day. And so the sacrifices were a constant daily occurrence. Day in, day out, there was this constant sacrificing of animals. And I heard Pastor Joel say in the first service that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. Salvation was one and the same. Salvation was by grace through faith. The grace of God accepted those sacrifices, not because the blood of bulls and goats had the ability to save anyone, because God allowed this substitute to teach the Israelites to look forward to something that would fulfill all those sacrifices. Jesus would be the final sacrifice. When he died on the cross, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the whole point of the sacrificial system was pointing to Jesus. So I want you to imagine yourself, you're living at the time of the temple. You commit a sin that you're aware of, and you don't want to wait till the Day of Atonement, which maybe is almost a year off. You want to take care of that sin as quickly as possible, because you know it's, it's breaking your relationship with God. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem, sacrifice a prescribed animal, and the way that sacrifice would take place, the priest would take the animal from you. Let's say it's a little goat. Hold the animal, bind its legs, tie them up so the animal can't run away. <coughs> and as he's holding the animal and binding the legs, you are instructed to place your right hand on the animal's head and confess your sin. So imagine, as you're confessing your sin, what's taking place is your sin is now being transferred to that little animal. 
That little animal is becoming your sin bearer. He's bearing your sin. And now the priest takes out a very sharp knife. But he doesn't do the killing. He hands you the knife, and with one hand on your animal's head, the throat is cut, the animal bleeds out and dies. A brutal exercise, but yet clearly teaching a lesson. That that animal died because of your sin. In fact, he died as a substitute for you. All of that, again, pointing forward to the cross. That's where the grace of God came in. That God allowed that sacrificial system to be a substitute until Jesus became the final sacrifice. So that's what we remember with the sacrifices. And then this element would not have been at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, the temple was still standing the sacrifice, the, the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed and they would have had a meal of lamb. Today, the tradition among Jewish people is very different. Most Jewish people do not eat lamb on Passover. Instead, this shank bone of a lamb is on the Seder plate as a reminder that the temple is no longer standing, so the Passover lamb is no longer slain. And so that is a reminder to the, to the Jewish people that they're waiting for another temple, which they believe the Messiah is going to come into. Now, prophetically, we're actually looking to two temples. One temple is called the Tribulation Temple, or the Third Temple. That temple will be where the Antichrist, the Anti-Messiah, will come into the temple, declare himself to be God, and demand to be worshipped. And in that temple is what's called the Abomination of Desolation. Jesus refers to that from the book of Daniel. That's the third temple. The fourth temple is found in the book of Ezekiel. That's called the Millennial Temple. That actually is the temple where the Messiah will be in, and the light of God, the Shekinah glory of God, will be in that temple. So that's what we remember with the shank bone. And so this would have been the first part of the Passover, and now we would have a meal, and if we do this, Soon again, we'll, we'll do, we'll, maybe we'll do one with a meal, and more people, now that they've seen it, maybe will want to come out. And so the meal will be taken from soup to dessert, and during the meal, I usually talk about my ministry. So while you're imagining your meal, I want, I want you to do a couple of things for me. Uh, you should have gotten one of these with your bulletin. Could you take it out? And if you don't have one, please raise your hand. So take it out. And open it up. It's four columns. I'd like you to open up. You only need one per family. Okay, while they're giving those out, let me just talk quickly about the... Uh, hold your hands up if you don't have it. few books. We have a book table out there that I would encourage you to go to. A lot of times I'm asked the question, is this in a booklet form? And, and Pastor referred to it a little bit. This is called a Haggadah. The, the word Haggadah means the telling or the retelling. It's the telling of the story. And it, it's laid out in such a way that it's intended to help you uh, celebrate Passover with your family. Passover for Jewish people is family time. The way Christmas is for Christians, uh, in my family, it was the only time when we would get together with my extended family and I, I would get to see my cousins would be at Passover. So extended family gathers together and usually the patriarch of the family, in my family it was an uncle, would uh, go through this book. And in here, 
uh, all of the Hebrew is transliterated into English. So if you get this book, you can be a Hebrew expert and sound like you went to seminary and uh, share it. The truth is, this is a wonderful experience. If you have small children, this is a great way to teach them how Jesus fulfilled the Passover and became our sacrifice, all of it pointing towards Easter. So that's the Messianic Passover Haggadah. This is a book called Messiah and the Passover that was written by the Chosen People staff. I actually have a chapter in this book uh, on the parallel between John 12 and Exodus 12. Uh, but if you read this book, this is an all-encompassing book about Passover. And I promise you, you will be an expert. Pastor will call you on the phone to ask you questions about Passover. It's, it has that much information in it. So I would encourage you uh, to pick up a copy of that. And then this book is our, our latest book, came out last summer, called Israel, the Church in the Middle East. Uh, and this is in celebration of Israel's 70th anniversary. Some of the top Christian scholars in the world wrote chapters for us, dealing basically uh, with the nation of Israel and, and her place in, in biblical prophecy. And a couple of books on the Middle East, usually people want to hear about you know, what's going on in the Middle East. This is an interesting book in that it's not new. It was written a couple of years ago, as you can tell by the title, The ISIS Crisis. Uh, but it really focuses on radical Islamists, what their agenda is, why they do what they do, and how it all fits with the Bible. And when this was written, ISIS was truly a crisis. Doesn't seem to be right now, but who knows, another group may pop up out of, out of the, what's left of them. Uh, so this is a good book to kind of gather what's going on and, and what does it all mean and how does it fit with the Bible. And so now that you've all gotten this, open up your, uh, your brochures. We're going to do an ancient Jewish tradition together. Would you all like to do that? Can't hear you. Okay. It's called the tearing of the brochure. So, so here's what I'd like you to do. Fold the perforation on a couple of times. Don't tear it yet. And then at the count of three, hopefully you'll do better than the first service because there weren't a lot of people and they didn't do it very well. But if you do this right, it's going to make a really neat sound. But you've got to follow my instructions. So fold it, make it easy to tear. Now at the count of three, we're going to tear together. Is everybody ready? Here we go. One, two, three. That was better. You should have two things. This is for you to keep all about Chosen People Ministries, uh, some biographical information of my wife and I, and uh, we are celebrating our 125th anniversary this year. So we were founded in 1894 by a Hungarian rabbi, and he founded the ministry in a horse stable in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn called the Williamsburg Mission to the Jews. It's interesting that our ministry was founded in a stable, the way our Messiah was found in a stable. And so this is a way for you to be involved in our ministry with this involvement card. Fill it out, you will receive our prayer letter, the monthly Chosen People newsletter, in which I'm doing a study on the book of Hebrews. Uh, I've been doing it for a couple of years now. Um, but, um, and, and then there's a place to indicate your gift to the ministry. There'll be a, a love offering taken at the very end of the service that uh, you'll be able to uh, indicate your gift to the ministry so that we could properly receipt you. And there's different ways to give, and Pastor will share other ways that you can give here. So that is our uh, commercial interlude. Did you all enjoy the meal? Yeah. 
How many of you have ever had matzo ball soup? Okay, just a few. Where's the closest Jewish deli here? In Richardson. There used to be a place called Bagelstein's. Is it still there? No? Check on Yelp. Okay. So all that to say, find a place and get some matzo ball soup. It's really good. That's a tradition for Passover. So now the meal is taken. And what happens next, the bread that was buried and hidden is brought back. And as it's brought back, I'm going to be reading, and Pastor is going to read this later on as well. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul writes this. Uh, actually, the, the bread would be taken out, unwrapped, and distributed for everyone to partake. So everyone's holding a piece of the bread. And Paul says this, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And if you look at the Da Vinci painting, again, it's daylight, because Italians have their big meal of the day at daytime. And so, <laughs> Da Vinci had a whole, he really did not follow biblical truth when he painted that painting. He had painted at daylight, and as Da Vinci was dealing with what this was all about, he thought, well, this would have been Good Friday when Jesus died, and if they're having a meal on Good Friday, Catholics don't eat meat on Good Friday. And so guess what Da Vinci painted as the meal? Painted fish. And to top it off, leaven was strictly forbidden on Passover, but since they were Italian, what do Italians eat with their meal? They eat Italian bread, so you have these nice little loaves of Italian bread on the table as well. So again, it's a beautiful work of art. Don't take it down. Uh, it's actually a fresco. It's, it's, not, it's not on canvas, it's on, it's on a ceiling at a church in Milan, Italy. And so, the bread is taken out. So the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, there's a beautiful Hebrew prayer, that's very likely Jesus would have prayed that prayer, Baruch Melech Lechem Min Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. Notice the difference between that prayer and the prayer for the cup, creator of the fruit of the vine, creator of the fruit of the earth. The bread's not created, it's brought forth. Jesus is talking about himself, offering himself to the people. And so, uh, Jesus and bread have always, always been connected. I am the bread of life. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, which in Hebrew, Bethlehem means the house of bread. So it said, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And everybody would have eaten from the afikomen. Now, we come up to the third cup. And remember, I told you I'd quiz you on this. The third cup is the cup of? Redemption. Good. It's the cup after supper. That's how we know it's the afikoman. <coughs> Excuse me. So this cup, well, it says, in the same way or in the same manner, he took the cup also after supper. So he took the bread after supper, which is the afikoman, 
Now he takes the cup after supper, which is the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as he takes the cup, he's saying, in effect, this cup, in the same way the first Passover lamb redeemed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, so now my shed blood will redeem you from slavery to sin. He would have recited the traditional prayer, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everybody say amen. amen. And they all would have taken the third cup. So what we remember, and when pastor talks about the elements, you're remembering the cup after supper, the bread after supper, each of them so amazingly pointing to Jesus. Now the fourth cup. The fourth cup is called the cup of praise, and Matthew tells us something very interesting about this fourth cup. In Matthew chapter 26, it said, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The fourth cup has a promise attached to it. I will take you to be my people. Jesus doesn't drink the fourth cup at his first coming because it's not fulfilled. It won't be fulfilled till his second coming. I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But we take this cup because God now is dealing with the world through this mystery, the body of Messiah called the church, made up of two groups, Israel and the nations, Jew and Gentile, one in the Messiah. And the prayer once again, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, borei peri ha'gafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who is the creator of the fruit of the vine. Everybody say amen. amen. And now... As we've looked at the Passover, hopefully now as we take the Lord's table, the significance and meaning will be even more meaningful for you. Pastor. Pastor. 